As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks anything, or ask anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Don't want to forget. All right. And then Genesis 32. Continuing our investigation of Genesis, one of, my, one, of my, one of my favorite stories. This is Jacob. Uh, last week we read about how he fled from home because Esau was uh, determined to kill him for stealing the blessing. Now he's on his uh, way home and he's received a report that Esau is coming with 400 men. All right. Genesis 32, starting at 22 to 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jebek. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. But Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping. Twins! Twins! are uh, a go-to device in lots of stories. Uh, you think of a movie like Parent Trap, which I don't know which version of it, because it has a twin version, actually. Uh, but it's a story about these two kid girls, separated, identical twins, separated in infancy, meet at summer camp or some such thing, and somehow they switch lives and get their parents back together. I don't know. It's been a while. Uh, sometimes when twins figure into a story, it's because they're sort of opposites, and so you have this, this idea of an evil twin. 
Uh, other times you have twins in a story because it creates some sort of plot twist. Uh, I remember in high school uh, seeing some terrible Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I think it was called Double Trouble. And the whole time we're led to believe that this villain has possesses some sort of crazy voodoo power. Uh, and But in the climactic scene, which I think in most every action film in the 80s, the big fight scene always takes place in some sort of factory that has steam. Anyway, anyway Jean-Claude Van Damme, apparently, you know, he kills the villain. <gasps> And the villain is suddenly back somehow. We're like, oh, wow, there's this voodoo power again. And so John Claude Van Damme kicks him to death again. And then we realize they are twins. And, you know, the only reason I go to such length in describing that dumb movie is because when that happened and you realize, oh, they're twins, I said aloud in the theater, I said, sure hope they aren't triplets. Right before Jean-Claude Van Damme said, I hope they're not triplets. Yeah. So my, I'm sure my friends wondered why they hung out with me. Well, that night, they, that's why you hang out with me. So. Anyway, so this is also a story about twins. Unlike, though, most twin stories, they are not identical twins. In fact, the text emphasizes some of their differences. Uh, they look different. Uh, their, their basic characters are sort of different. But they do resemble one another enough that Jacob can pass for Esau in order to get the blessing he, with his own father, right? All he has to do is put on Esau's clothes and put goatskin on, and he can pass for Esau. So they must be somewhat close. And what's interesting about the story, this story as a whole is, you know, so Jacob flees, he goes to Laban, Laban has two daughters, not twins, but uh, they obviously have some close resemblance because Jacob falls in love with the younger daughter, works out a deal with Laban to say, who says, all right, you work for me for seven years, you can marry her, and then he does that, and then the night after his wedding, he looks over, it's not it's not uh, Rachel, it's Leah, right? So again, they're, they're not twins, but obviously they, have, uh, they look a lot alike, and they're used to deceive, right? This time, Jacob, instead of being the deceiver, is the deceived. And it seems to me that these two incidents with these twins uh, give us... Uh, creates sort of a theme that runs throughout the story as a whole. Because Jacob means heel grabber. A heel grabber in that culture is a trickster. He's a trickster. And what a trickster does is it sort of presents you as with what you think is reality, and then you realize, oh, nope, it only bore a close resemblance. And in fact, this is what's happening. So it's and a deception. I bring that up in part because when I read, you know, when I've read these, sto these stories, I've read them a number of times, I often feel that I am sort of, that we as readers are in the position of Isaac. We're presented something as the reality, and then you're like, wait, is that, is that what's really going on here? Or is this just something in disguise? I'll give you an example. So when 
uh, Jacob is working uh, for his uncle slash father-in-law Laban. They make this deal that Jacob can have all the spotted and speckled uh, livestock. And so what Jacob does is he, and it's not clear what he's doing here because the Hebrew is unclear, but he does something with these sticks uh, while, the, while, the, during, while they're mating and somehow that results in spotted and speckled uh, livestock, which makes, you know, so Jacob is getting wealthier and wealthier and whereas his uncle is like, hey, what's the deal? And his uncle finally gets frustrated and complains and sort of changes the wages. And Jacob is all hurt. And uh, he tells his wives how unfair his uncle's being. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jacob said, you know, well, here's why I've got all these spotted and speckled sheep. I saw a vision and the angel told me that this is what was going to happen. And uh, that I would be blessed by all these. So it's not, I didn't do it. Well, that's kind of an interesting take on it, Jacob. I'm not saying he didn't have that vision, but that, it's interesting that that's the version he presents to his wives. Because if it was really about uh, their uncle, and he told them about the scheme with the sticks, and like, hey, Jacob, put away the sticks for a bit. Let my dad have some livestock. But no, he, just, no, he presents this thing. You're like, well, wait, is, is that what's really happening here? Or is this just... Jacob's agenda because really Jacob just wants to go back home. He feels like he has accumulated enough wealth. He's got his family. He wants to go home. And so he gives, when he presents this version of what's happened, his wives are like, yeah, all right, let's go. And then, and then even after that, so they wait until Laban is, I guess, off in the, do, shearing the sheep uh, with his uh, with Laban's sons, that they take off. Laban comes home, discovers that they've taken off, is furious, and he goes to chase them down. It takes a week for him to catch up. The night before Laban uh, catches up to Jacob, he has a dream. And in that dream, he says, uh, God says to, to Laban, take heed that you say not a word to Jacob, either good or bad. So then he has that dream, and then he confronts Jacob. And what's interesting is, it seems to me that the straightforward reading of that is, don't talk to Jacob. Laban goes up, you know what God said? God was sort of saying when he said that, that you have every right to be angry and uh, you know, take revenge on, on Jacob, but let him off the hook. And then Jacob hears that and he goes, no, no, no. Basically, here's what God's saying is, is that God knew that you were going to be cruel and you were going to, you were going to chase me down. And God was having to intervene and stop you from doing that. And so you wonder, what well, is, who, who is right here? Who is presenting reality? and Who is just disguising reality with their agenda? This, it sort of reminds me of the third commandment. The third commandment is, should not take the Lord's name in vain. Right? Typically we think, okay, well, that means, um, you know, don't say beep and beep when you hit your finger with a hammer or somebody cuts you off while you're on the road. And it is about that, but it's, it's about more than that. It's about what Jacob and Laban are doing here. 
you know, it's a prohibition against taking God's name and putting as part of your disguise, a way of disguising your personal agenda. You know, don't use it to serve your own purposes. You know, in the, in the coming weeks, I think we're going to try to have some structured conversation uh, about the future of this church and what sort of initiatives we might take and things we might do. And I have some ideas about that. I feel pretty strongly about that, about these ideas. And I, I, I get the appeal of saying that whatever idea I have is, you know, something that the Lord has placed on my heart. But I'm, you know, you can hold me accountable to this. I'm not going to talk that way because I think talking that way is a violation of the third commandment. You know, it's a way of saying, hey, uh, you can disagree with me if you want to disagree with God, right? Like, that's just not fair. Uh, that's a misuse of God's name. You cannot reduce God to a rhetorical device to get your way. It can't be words used to disguise your personal agenda. Because then you can't trust those words anymore. Just like there are times when that story, you're like, I don't know if I trust what these guys are saying. Anyway, but back to our, our, our passage. What's, again, this theme comes back again, because it's not identical to the passage we read last week, but it is... There's some family resemblance there, right? Because last week, Jacob is fleeing from home. This week, he's coming home. Last week, we emphasized the fact that he, had, he left with nothing but this blessing. This week, he comes back, he's got evidence of that blessing and, and that abundance. And so he is returning after having experienced years of blessing. But... I mean, he's got herds of livestock, he's got wives, he's got a mob of kids. I mean, it's, he is a successful man. But what had driven him from home was that fear of Esau. And out of fear of Esau, he takes all that blessing and he sends it across the river to try to appease Esau. All right, so, so again, we have Jacob all alone, uh, in fear of his brother, and it's, it's at night. You know, in his mind, in Jacob's mind, it's, it's as if the same story has been unfolding all through his life, ever since he was in the womb. You know, it's, he, he has been, look, there's always been some opponent that he has to, be Jacob with. He has to sort of scheme against, to get an advantage, a jockey for position. Um, but that's not what happens on that night. On that night, he thinks he's going to fight Esau, right? This is the showdown, but it turns out he's deceived. Um, he, his opponent demands that Jacob let him go. Um, and, and, and this is picking up a theme we hear in, see in Genesis, uh, but we see in also in Scripture, this idea that, you know, you cannot uh, experience the full presence of God and live. And so the, his opponent, who's God, is saying, you know, you got to let me go for your own sake. 
The sun's coming up. But Jacob won't. Jacob, I think there's a sense Jacob realizes, okay, that my life has not been the story I thought it was. Something else is going on here, and I need to know that I am blessed. The response is interesting, right? Because it's not immediately to give a blessing. Say, what is your name? And that is a, I think that's a weighted question. Who are you? I am Jacob. I am the heel grabber. I am the trickster. I am the guy that's always been working for an advantage, a guy that's always working the angles, always pushing an agenda. There has always been an opponent. First it was Esau, then it was Laban. And then you look at his relationships with his wives and it's the same sort of jockeying and, and scheming. And, but in this moment, he has to realize it's not been about any of that. No, it's not, a, I, his life is not the, the story told by the heel grabber. His story told by God, that God is the ultimate storyteller and that he needs that story to be about blessing. So what is your name? I'm Jacob. I've managed to fool myself into thinking that this is my story to tell. But now I realize that the only buddy that's been tricked is myself. You know, last week, Jacob woke from his dream and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And even there, he treats God as someone he's got to contend with. Okay, here's the deal, God. If, you're, if you will be my God, then I will do this. But tonight, tonight at this night, in that moment, he realizes he just needs the blessing. And he's given a new name. He's given the name Israel, which can be translated two ways. Strives with God, wrestles with God, or God wrestles. Which is, again, is sort of interesting, right? It has sort of like these twin interpretations. This is the name that God gives God's people. They will be the people who wrestle with God and with whom God will wrestle. You can see that wrestling even happening in Jacob's response where he says, and what is your name? Right? And in that culture, to know someone's name is to have some sort of claim on them, have some power over them. And so God said, well, let's not Jacob this thing. Right? Why are you asking me my name? Jacob walks away with a blessing. But he also walks away with a limp, right? That seat, uh, the sun comes up, and there walks Jacob with his limp. And that does strike me as a fitting image for what it is that happens, what happens when we engage God, when we hang on for that blessing. Because it's often a wound that precedes the blessing, right? There is this, there is a tendency when we're wounded, when, we, when we're forced to confront our limits, uh, when, we, when we feel vulnerable, there's a tendency to sort of want to curl up in on ourselves. But here, 
Jacob resists that because he wants to hang on to a source of blessing outside of himself. We have to hold on when we're confronted with our vulnerability, confronted by our limits. Yes, that hurts. That's a wound. But don't let that wound keep you from hanging on for the blessing because the blessing will come. You know, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And they greet him as Messiah. And they are exactly right because that's exactly who it is. But the version of Messiah they see is just sort of a projection of their own personal and national agenda. What they see only bears some resemblance to the actual Messiah. And when Jesus fails to do what they think the Messiah is supposed to do, it's they feel wounded. When they see Jesus arrested, roughed up, and seemingly helpless, they, that stings. And they don't curl up into themselves, they lash out, which is another response. You have wounded me, I will wound you. So the, to the same person that they cried, save us, save us, they now cry, crucify, crucify. And here's the great surprise, right? It's that those, those cries of Hosanna, save us, and crucify, crucify, they seem at first to be the opposite. But they are, in fact, twins. They're the same thing. Because in order to save us, save us, the Messiah must go to battle for us and must be crucified. So even as that story jars us, we must hold on hold on for dear life. These wounds, they will lead to blessing. You know, it's, it is, it's easy to use God as just sort of a rhetorical device, a way of feeling good about ourselves or our personal agenda. Because God isn't here the way you and I are here. Uh, you know, Freud argued that God is just a projection of our desires or our fears, uh, a way of fulfilling some psychological needs. And it's true that we can use God in that way, words about God in that way. And to me, this story of Jacob is, is sort of poking at that, right? No, you can't just be, God can't just be a rhetorical device to disguise your personal agenda. You need God. You need to get beyond the words and, and to put your arms around God. God, it can't just be talked about. God must be wrestled with, engaged. You've got to grab hold of God, even if that means getting wounded in the process, having our own limits exposed, because that is where the blessing is. So Jacob goes off limping to meet Esau. And it is not the confrontation that he feared. Esau has not come out to do battle with him. Esau has come to greet him, to welcome him home. And so this gift that Jacob had intended to try to appease Esau's anger, Jacob now has a totally different, he just wants to give because he's so grateful. In fact, this encounter sort of bears a family resemblance to the encounter that night, the night before. Because that night at the river, he expected to meet his brother 
and only discover his arms are wrapped around God. Here, he expects to meet his brother, and he does. But what does he say? This is, this is chapter 33, verse 10. Truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. See, that's the consequence of blessing. It's not that God is suddenly present the way you and I are present to one another, but, to, but it is to be able to see God's presence in one another. God not, God not, it is not the words, but you can see God through the words. God is in the words. So you are limited. You are, you are vulnerable. You have been wounded. You are wounded. But don't let go. Hang on for the blessing. Because that changes everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.